You've just found your survival guide for the new reality of business. From technical advances to motivation and leadership, workplace changes are happening all around us. How can CEOs, leaders, and managers accelerate talent development, reshape culture, and succeed with purpose? By seeing what's coming and making the personal and organizational choices to do better. Welcome to the Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett. Welcome to the Future Proof Workplace radio show. Thank you for joining us today. Through these radio shows, our goal is to share insights and information on trending topics impacting the world of work and careers in the 21st century. To do that, we invite experts and thought leaders to be our guests. And after tuning in, we want you to walk away having learned something new and be equipped to future-proof your organization and your career. This is Morag Barrett, partner at Sky Team and best-selling author of Cultivate the Power of Winning Relationships, as well as co-author with Dr. Linda Sharkey of The Future Proof Workplace. Linda's speaking at a global conference today, so can't be with us. However, I'm thrilled to be joined by two fabulous guests. And I have with me Abby Kerno-Chavez and Rebecca Teasdale, two of the four authors of the new book, The Loyalist Team, How Trust Candor and Authenticity Create Great Organizations. This book introduces tools that allow anyone to get to the heart of why teams break down, identify the weaknesses in their own team, and more importantly, build what the authors describe as a loyalist team. So Abby and Rebecca, thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Morag. It's great to be here. So, Rebecca, why don't we start so that our listeners can learn a little bit more about you and the Trispective group. Just give us the potted history of how you got to where you are today and what your passion and focus is at the Trispective group. Uh, Yes. So we met, three of the authors met at a uh, business that we worked at in the the dot-com boom, the high-tech boom in the late 90s and early 2000s, where we were able to drive some pretty dramatic change in culture and leadership and teams during the tech boom. It was a great experimental um, kind of place to um, put this work into play. And after a while, after five or six years, we were ready to take our learnings and approaches to other companies um, that needed it. We knew if we could do that um, with a lot of really smart engineers in the, the high-tech world, we could we could probably make a difference anywhere. So um, we joined our own consulting firm. And a few years later, we met Abby, who was a client at the time. And um, here we are, the four of us, 10 years later. Isn't it amazing how quickly time flies? So, Abby, what brought you to decide to join the Trispective Group? Uh, Great question. So, uh, you know, as Rebecca described the journey, um, you know, part of that was the I was actually the first um, client when I was working at Newmont Mining as the head of talent, um, brought the Trispective Group in and they partnered with us for, I think it was a good six years to uh, do a whole bunch of different awesome work, uh, working with teams, executive coaching. And so I got to know um, the the women who are now my partners. I uh, got to know how incredible they were. So it was an easy uh, decision for me when I made the choice to step away from an internal role in corporate America um, or working for a big, big firm uh, in consulting. So easy decision for me to join a loyalist team. 
Well, there you go. Role modelling the very concepts that you talk about in your new book. So again, Rebecca and Abby, I'm really excited for our conversation today. And you mentioned there your new book. It's out. It's causing quite a buzz. It's called The Loyalist Team, How Trust, Candor and Authenticity Create Great Organisations. So tell me first, what compelled you to write the book? So, you know, for us, when Rebecca had said this too, right, we are incredibly passionate about the topic of teams. I know you are too, Morag. Um, And, you know, all work happens in teams today. And the way a team works together or does not work together really makes or breaks the results. It makes or breaks um, how how much satisfaction, how much engagement folks have um, in their role. But ultimately... When a team works well, um, results are going to get delivered. When a team is highly dysfunctional or toxic, um, we all know the outcomes to that are people losing their jobs, results not getting delivered, um, a, a lack of a lack of real engagement, and desire to achieve the business results. So that's that's the heart of it. You know, when we made a decision to really turn around and write the book, it was when we could see that we had a model and we had a bank of research that was really compelling um, that we knew and we'd worked with our clients for uh, close to a decade on a model that we knew uh, was sticky and that people would understand and it would give them a way to understand their team and um, put things in place to improve their team. Mm, I love what you share there because you're right. Uh, my first career was in commercial finance and uh, it doesn't matter how good the idea or the product or service any business is providing. What I learned in my finance career is that true success, and in those days the ability to pay the bank back, was down to the quality of the teamwork. And there is no business on this planet that I don't believe can't be undermined by poor interpersonal relationships, hence cultivate the power of winning relationships or poor teamwork hence your book, The Loyalist Team. So, Rebecca, in the book, you talk about four different team dynamics. Can you help us understand what those four dynamics are that you've seen and worked with through the Trispective group? Uh, yes, Mark. So, um, they're, they're all pretty interesting, and I think people can relate to them because I think most people have been on uh, maybe all of these teams at some point in their careers. Um, on the low end, the, the really bad team, we call it the team from hell, is what we call the saboteur team. And if you've ever been on a saboteur team, you'll absolutely know it. They're miserable circumstances. There's a lot of CYA behavior. There's politicking. There's backstabbing. And I As a result, value is lost because people um, are focused on the wrong things. You see personal agendas happening. Um, It's just a really, it's almost impossible to focus on the real work because there's so many distractions uh, that take you away from the real work. One up from the saboteur team is what we call a benign saboteur team. And those are teams that aren't as, you don't have that kind of active undermining where people feel like they're, you know, they may be out to get you, they're out to get each other. But what you do have are team members who kind of put their heads down, keep their heads in the sand and they don't get involved. They don't help each other um, actively. They just, their motive is to kind of survive and they don't engage um, either positively or negatively with others. 
the the one up from there is called a situational loyalist team, and that's a pretty good team where people generally get along together. Um, they like each other. They are probably mostly collaborative and trusting. But what those teams are missing is an active. Uh, uh, inspiration or motive to help each other, and you don't have um, a level of candor that differentiates the team. You don't have um, extensive trust and people holding each other accountable for results. And then the final one is the loyalist team that we named the book after, and that's those very rare team uh, situations where people um, you have a high uh, uh, degree of accountability. You have a high degree of candor and uh, conflict, good conflict, and you have a uh, you have a team dynamic where everyone can do their best work. Um, and those are the four types: so saboteur, benign saboteur, situational loyalist, and loyalist. So it's interesting that you talk about the loyalist team, Rebecca, being rare, but it seems like common sense to me and we should all be striving to be a high-performing team. Why are they so rare? What gets in the way of success? Oh, I love that you asked that because it does seem like common sense. Um, So on the one hand, we see people tolerating horrible team experiences because they don't know what to do or how to break the bad habits and how to get out of it. Um, This is unbelievably common. And so um, what differentiates it, I, I think some of the most important things, one, I mentioned greater accountability, and that's not just boss to employee accountability. Um, on these teams, you have people willing in a very good way to hold each other accountable. You also have, and I think this is, it speaks to the, the human condition. You have a high degree of open candor and productive conflict. We see people generally afraid to call each other out or give each other tough feedback because it feels really scary. It feels like it might hurt the relationship. And on these teams, they've developed habits where they are free to give each other candor and feedback. And what that gets you is the ability to have the tough conversation around what's, what holds you back. Um, this, go Sorry, ahead. I didn't interrupt. Finish, finish no. the thought, Rebecca. Well, the third one is you get a commitment to team goals versus my individual goals. So instead of being motivated to um, drive my own agenda and what I want, I am committed along with everyone else on my team to the team goals. And the final piece is you have everyone on the team who who can do their very best work. They're not afraid to ask for help and they're open to the feedback, which lets them step up and do an exceptional job at delivering the team uh, results. It's interesting. I was just reading some research that came out of Google. There was an article in the Harvard Business Review that talked about psychological safety, which sounds like a very fancy consultant speak. But to me, it sums up what you've just described, that when we are on a loyalist team, is what I'm assuming from what you've just described, we feel safe enough to give those warnings of impending disaster, to ask for help when we're feeling overwhelmed or unsure of the way forward, to give the feedback and hear the feedback when it's directed directed at us that sometimes gets lost on other teams. Am I right in summarizing there the key messages that you just shared? Yes, you you absolutely are. And I think 
people, depending on their upbringing, their culture, the way they're socialized, um, have a different relationship with candor and conflict. People usually will sit on it and stay silent in order to stay safe and not harm relationships. Sometimes people are more inclined to blurt it out, to spit out their truth mm-hmm. and step right into the conflict. So if you can get to the sweet spot where you can give it in a way that can be heard and people are willing to hear it, you can break through those fears. And let me just say, um, in our research, I would like to say that um, it's a pretty stunning statistic, but compared to um, a saboteur team, a loyalist team, um, people are 50 times more likely to openly discuss conflict when it comes up. Wow. And so that, yeah, it's a pretty compelling uh, statistic. And that's that's a healthy thing to learn. I think a lot of people are all around conflict avoidance. Uh, in fact, I was just reading a new book called Conflict Without Casualties, which I thought was a great way of putting it because conflict is actually a or an unhealthy conflict is sign of an effective team. But when we aren't debating, whether that's passionately and banging our fist on the table, if that's your style, if everything is all about the status quo, then chances are we're missing that next innovation or the ability to raise the bar individually and collectively. So, Abby, I mean, this is powerful stuff. And you used the phrase earlier on about it being sticky. So tell me, what has been the reaction with your clients and the teams that you've been working with to the loyalist team model and the concepts that you're sharing? So, uh, you know, we feel really lucky, right, that we've landed on on a model, um, and and over time, we've been able to look at the put research behind it, and so what we have found with clients is when there is a common language. I mean, this sounds again, it sounds really simple, right? But when they have a common language to use, and they can say, "This is what a loyalist team looks like, sounds like. These are the behaviors. These are the mindsets. These are the motives of a loyalist team." Um, and then they can anchor around it and they can work towards it. So, you know, when a team works and puts together what we would call team norms or operating norms, um, which we highly recommend every team does, um, and loyalist teams do it and they live by it uh, religiously. Uh, but w- when they're able to do that and they're able to say, we're going to assume positive intent, we are not going to gossip, we are going to put all the toughest issues on the table. And we're going to get comfortable with feedback, with the level of candor needed for us to address our hardest problems. You know, when teams are able to do that with a common language and a common framework, it makes it a lot easier. You know, the other pieces is it sets the bar really high. And a lot of teams don't do that. No, they don't. And in fact, one of our listeners has uh chatted in to us to ask the question, this seems to only apply to big companies, but does it? So my question for you is, are these concepts important whether you're a five-person organization or a 50,000-person organization? What's your experience of loyalist teams? I'll take that if you don't mind, Abby, because I talked I talked, I got a call from a client yesterday, a potential client yesterday who has just read our book and she, she runs a 15 person team. They do about 17 million in revenue annually. And her team is in a complete state of disaster right now. Um, I think 
in in many cases, small teams need um, the and can benefit from the model and the book because in many cases they haven't had the benefit of a large corporate training environment that can bring in a lot of training around leadership. Um, in any time you have a team of you know a few people or more, you're going to enter. You're going to come in uh, contact with a lot of emotions, personal reactions, people's um, habits, and there's benefit to uh, working towards high performance. And our goal is it's not accidental. A lot of people can figure out how to do this accidentally, but we want to give people the ability to repeat and replicate um, this great team situation anywhere they are. Mm, that's great advice. And I'd encourage any listeners, whether you're working for a big corporation or a small corporation, whether you're just considering your team or a larger part of the business, get your hands on the loyalist team. Uh, how trust, candor, and authenticity create uh, great organizations, you won't be disappointed. So we're going to go for a break. But when we come back, Abby, I want to talk with you a little bit more about why now? Why uh, the change in the willingness of leaders and organizations to talk about these concepts, concepts that in my experience in the 20th century were misdescribed as the soft skills, but as you and I know, are critical for success in the 21st century. So stay with us. And when we come back, we'll be talking with Rebecca and uh, Abby from the Trispective Group about their new book, The Loyalist Team, How Trust, Candor and Authenticity Create Great Organizations. Ever wondered if your career will last? Will your job be around in 10 years, 5 years, or even tomorrow? The Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett gives you practical tips and tools that are not only fact-based and proven to make you a better leader, but will also ensure that both your organization and career are future-proof. Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett are sought-out keynote speakers, leadership development and organization experts, and they can help you future-proof your career. To learn more about everything they have to offer you and your organization, visit futureproofworkplace.com. Welcome back to the Future Proof Workplace Radio Show. This is Morag Barrett, co-author with Dr. Linda Sharkey of the Future Proof Workplace book. And I'm excited to have with me Abby Kerno chavez and Rebecca Teasdale from the Trispective Group and two of the four authors of a new book called The Loyalist Team, How Trust, Candor and Authenticity Create Great Organizations. And before we went to break, I'd posed the question for Abby as to why now? Why uh, is there more of a willingness by leaders and organizations to talk about these concepts around high-performing teams, concepts that perhaps previously were misdescribed and dismissed as soft skills. So, Abby, why now? Well, let me first just say, thank goodness, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes, or about time. <laughs> yes, finally. Uh, you know, I I strongly believe that um, it, in, in, some, in many ways, it's sort of been forced upon the workforce. And, you know, we've got loads and loads of um, folks coming into the workforce who are saying, you know, I don't want work to suck. I want to have room to grow and learn. And I want to admire the people that I work for. And I want to work in a culture that feels safe and uh, healthy. And, you know, the war for talent, one has driven it. Um, we certainly had a big boom in there when that was key. Um, but now I really think we have watched some of the best companies across the world put 
tons and tons of time and effort and money into um, teams and into people and into their leaders. And they have helped to set a really high bar for what it is um, that great culture looks like and what healthy teams look like. And I really think as, as people look to that, they say, I, I expect the same thing. So Lord, can I add to that? Oh, please do, Rebecca. So I, you know, it's so interesting because I think back even in the Enron days, people started getting really wise to toxic cultures and toxic workplaces. And even up through Uber and some of the other um, well-known organizations that have had kind of catastrophic problems because of their their culture um people are wise about it and they know i mean those those bad environments have something in common just as the good ones do and people um are are a a lot wiser and a lot more savvy and a lot more um curious and demanding when they're joining a company about what about what kind of culture they're getting into. Absolutely. And I think in today's modern world where we're only like an arm's reach from a smartphone and we're all uh, closet paparazzi, when we don't have those high performing teams, it's only a matter of time before that hits um, the social media channels and headline news. And as you've mentioned there with Uber and with United and with Equifax and uh, only this week with Kobe Steel, there are a long list of companies that are being shown to have made decisions that were questionable, which you could attribute to both leadership, but also the quality and candor within the teams. So you were describing earlier the the two of you around loyalist teams, and I can understand why a team would strive to be a loyalist team. But if that's the case, why do so many teams fall short? Why do we see the headlines like Kobe Steel and Equifax and Uber, et cetera, um, hitting the airwaves? So... It's such a good question. Um, you know, and in our research, I'll tell you what we found. We found that only about 15% of teams are actually loyalist teams. So, you know, here we have this conversation about, you know, the expectation is higher and finally people are focusing on it. Um, but it's a lot easier to say and it's a lot easier to believe in than to actually do it. Um, and I think, uh, you know, the... And, and now I'm, tell me what your question was again. <laughs> what stops it? We know we want to get there. I can see the hill. What stops us from becoming a loyalist team? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what we see as one of the biggest sort of differentiators, right, between um, teams that are loyalist and teams that are not is really this ability to lean in and assume positive intent of your teammates. And so many environments are such that, you know, we show up to, we, we protect ourselves, we worry about achieving our own goals, and we often don't have a, a leader or a manager who is, you know, who's really skilled and at, at leading a team, at bringing a team together, at setting an expectation for how the team will, will work together. And I, I think that this is a huge part of why teams fall short is the expectation isn't set. There isn't necessarily a leader and teammates um, that that know how to hold each other accountable for that. Yeah, Rebecca, is there anything you'd like to add in terms of the observations you've had with the teams you've had a chance to work with? Um, 
yes, and these echo some of the things Abby was getting at, but I think in general, they don't know how. Um, mm-hmm. They just don't have the language in the same way, you know, I don't know how to solve a calculus problem. Um, if you don't have a framework or a starting point for understanding it, it's just really hard to figure out on your own. As Abby said, if there's a bad leader in place, that's almost always a showstopper. And other times there's a good leader in place, but they aren't willing to do the hard work of holding team members accountable. And in our work on with teams, we believe you get what you tolerate. And there comes a point when you have to make some tough calls and um, make sure you have the right people on the team. Otherwise, you're, you're not going to go anywhere fast. Mm, that, that can be hard. And I don't know about your experience, but certainly with Sky Team and the work what we've been doing with teams around the world, there's often a wish for the silver bullet and a quick fix. But of course, invariably, and a low performing team, whether it's a benign saboteur team or a situational loyalist team, it's taken months, if not years of complacency or poor habits to get there. It's not something that gets fixed in a one hour or a half day uh, team session. <laughs> This is something you behaved your way into it. You're going to have to behave your way out of it. And it requires courage to have some of the tough conversations and to look closely in the mirror at personal accountability as to how did I contribute to this state of affairs? But even before I get there to the, okay, I need help. Help me become a, a loyalist team. I need to know where I am. And when we're stuck in a dysfunctional team, it can sometimes be hard to see the wood for the tree. So how do I know if I'm a situational loyalist team or a saboteur team? How do I find out? So um, there's a couple ways. Um, if it's not intuitive, kind of what to look for on the surface, um, we have a free checklist in our book and on our website that just it describes what to look for for each of these four team types. And it's pretty easy to run through that checklist and go, yeah, yeah, no, no, and mm-hmm. um, very um, informally diagnose your team. Um, you can also ask around, talk to people, observe what's happening, and then we are also very happy to offer a free assessment online that's a very quick 20-question assessment that'll just, from your point of view, um, take your, your the answers to your questions and diagnose and put you in one of those four team types. So the answers are out there if you choose to look. So I can go through the checklist in the book. I can obviously ask what's the team's reputation with colleagues inside and outside within my organization or head to your website and take advantage of that 20 question survey. All right. So it's fairly squarely put my team and I as benign saboteurs. Let's start there. Because we won't go with the team from hell because it's Thursday afternoon and I'm going to keep it lighthearted. The sun's shining (laughs) here in Colorado. But let's say we're on a benign saboteur team. What do I do now? What are some of the first steps that I – let's do it from a team member's perspective first. So maybe, Rebecca, you can take it from a team member's perspective. And then, Abby, if I'm the team leader, what can I do if it's different to start effecting change So team member, I've realized, oh my goodness, I'm on a benign saboteur team. Do I keep quiet? Do I speak up? Rebecca, what do I do? I would say as a team member, it's very important to first 
acknowledge and create, um, just have a discussion with the team about, are we a good team? How are we doing? Do we enjoy this? Are we working towards the same goals? And by getting everyone involved and discussing it is, is a leadership role you can play, even if you're not the leader. And I think modeling the right behaviors is the, the best thing you can do as a team member. And that would be things like um, talking about whether or not we have a shared goal or we're independently motivated, Um, taking the risk of asking for personal feedback, finding ways to give each other feedback that can be heard, investing in the relationships on the team because those relationships are really, at the end of the day, what define your team dynamic. And through all of that, raising the bar with with your other team members and helping to educate your team leader about um, where you're wanting to to see the team go. Okay, Abby, I'm the team leader now, and I've got my head in my hands, and I've realised that I've either inherited or created a benign saboteur team. Help! Oh. <laughs> yeah. So, so if I'm the team leader, and and I and I take this assessment, for example, I look at this and I see, okay. My team is in a place of they're playing it safe. They're in a survival mode. They're looking out for themselves. They're working in silos. Um, they're not really visibly supporting each other. They only do what they're supposed to do. They don't really reach across the fence um, and help their teammates. They stay silent. These are all the characteristics of a benign saboteur team. So, you know, I think the first thing. Um, that I would look to do as a leader is to um, first educate myself a little bit on what is it that's going on here with my team that they're feeling like this? What am I doing um, to contribute to this? Have I made it clear to them that I want to see collaboration? Uh, Do they have shared goals? Um, Do they understand what each other is accountable for and how they can support and help each other? You know, very pragmatically, I would bring them together. I would um, highlight uh, this finding that says, hey, look, guys, I think we're here. I think we're a benign saboteur team and and I don't want us to be there. I'm guessing you don't want us to be there. Um, What are the things we need to do to move forward, to collaborate differently, to put some goals in place that we can all rally around? Because often what you see with a benign saboteur team is there's just not a set of of goals or interdependence or collaboration that they're that they're being asked um, mm-hmm. to move forward and do. So usually you got to break through those walls. And what I like about the message from both of you there is that it isn't just on the shoulders of one person. It's not just down to the team leader to. Uh, develop the team or just down to the team members, it is literally the first step in that collaborative effort. And of course, the world of work is probably the biggest team sport that any of us get to play in. But too often we see team on team conflict for uh, teams working within the same company versus no, we should be working together to deliver the strategic priorities. So thank you for sharing that. So on the cover of the book, 
the Loyalist team, how trust, candor and authenticity create great organisations. I'm curious about this trust, candor and authenticity piece. So let's take them one at a time. Trust is one of those um, words that are bandied around. It's uh, corporate value. We trust each other. And then I will often hear people struggle with how do you build trust within a team? So what advice do you have for how do you build trust as a foundation for your loyalist team? So um, this is Abby. Uh, you know, I think the it's a, such an interesting topic. And, you know, it doesn't matter what team model you look at. One of the key things they say is people need to trust each other. And it's core to the success of every team. And, you know, I look at trust in two ways. One is uh, trust. There's there's trust, which means, um, you know, I trust your intent. I trust that you have my back. I trust um, that, you know, we've got good intentions with each other. And then the second part is I trust that you're going to do what you say you're going to do. I trust that you're going to do the work you're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. And in the work world, it's often actually the second one where things start to break down. And it's really having that accountability for each other's success that's incredibly critical when we define the word trust. Um, and that's where, you know, the basis of the loyalist model is really to um, start there and put those things in place that allow you to build that trust. Okay, I like that. So it's the I trust you as a person, but I may not trust that you'll actually follow through and do your work, your piece of the puzzle on time and at the right quality. And therefore, that results in the unproductive behavior, maybe of I'm checking up on you. So now you feel micromanaged and therefore you feel like I don't trust you. And we get this ever decreasing spiral versus a virtuous circle that builds us up. All right, so that's trust. Candor. Rebecca, where does candor come into this? So they're they're listed in that order, interestingly, because it's hard to have good candor without trust. Trust is a building block. When you have that, you can move into this candor zone, which is very hard for people because people don't want to be uncomfortable. And the, often, the, the better we know people, the more we trust them, the harder it can be to, we don't want to hurt people's feelings. So I think candor is kind of the last realm of um, for what a team has to work on to push through to the next level. Um, you have to practice it. And that looks like saying your piece, saying what needs to be said, but saying it from your perspective and not as a universal truth. And that makes space for other people's opinions on a topic. You know you have it when you know you're getting the toughest issues on the table as quickly as possible. Teams begin to have a strategic advantage when there's an environment where the, the the uh, the real hard issues can uh, get mentioned and dealt with. Um, we have a client, a CEO, who it, it's so interesting because he gets the connection between candor and results. And with his executive team, every two weeks, he sets aside on their team agenda. And this is an unbelievably busy, stretched um, high-performing organization, but even amidst all of that, he makes time um, to sit and people have to give each other feedback and they have to be candid and he will sit in silence and wait until his people start to engage at that next level of candor because it's such a differentiator for, for, for team uh, 
for teams. And I, you mentioned a book on kind of candor and conflict, Morag, but there's another recent one I like called Radical Candor that mm-hmm. speaks to a really nice way of um, approaching what can be terrifying for many of us and moving into that space of great candor. Yeah, I love that book, Radical Candor. There's a lot of great resources out there and it avoids the candor grenades. I think we've all worked with colleagues who, for whatever reason, maybe they're getting a little bored or mischievous, but they throw what I describe as the candor grenade and then sit back and watch the crazy ensue and the heated debate. But they're not actually actively part of the conversation that needs to happen to solve for their piece of feedback that they've just given. And I think what you've just described in terms of the loyalist team is I may still lob the candor grenade, but I do it in a way that I'm still willing to catch it and be part of, and how do we solve for this going forward? So that's candor. All right. So trust is the foundation. It's trust you as an individual, but trust the follow through. The candor in that we're having the right conversations at the right time, both about how we're working together, but also what we're working on. So it's the process and systems as well as the interpersonal piece. So the third element of your subtitle is authenticity. Wow. So tell me more about authenticity. So that's sort of the, oh, go ahead, Rebecca. Well, let me start, Abby, and then you just take it. Um, I would say authenticity is, I guess, the magic to this because people want and need to be themselves. Um, People do their best work when they can show up and not feel like they're having to pretend to fit into a mold or to be someone else. And a big piece of that is embracing our own weaknesses and our shortcomings. And when you can be open and honest and vulnerable about what, what we don't know, what we're afraid of, what, um, you know, when we need help, we are truly showing up in an authentic way. And, um, truly a loyalist team is that that environment where you can show up and be yourself. So it's interesting, Abby, I want to bring you in in a moment. I I use a quote in our uh, leadership programs and high-performing team sessions from Reed Hastings of Netflix, where he is quoted as saying, um, don't tolerate brilliant jerks. The cost to teamwork is too high. But one of the challenges I've had around being authentic is your brilliant jerk sometimes turns up and says, well, I just shoot from the hip. You have to, this is what you see is what you get, you know, toughen up cupcake, get used to it. So how do you deal with that when the authenticity of I am like I am can get in the way of, ah, but it may not be what we need you to be? Abby, how do we get through to our brilliant jerks? Yeah. So, um, you know, I love that. And we're seeing more and more clients. It's interesting sort of pick up that term. I think as Netflix has made that more um, more popular. Uh, but, you know, absolutely, the, there's an, and there's a great HBR article out there that essentially says, right, you can't lean on your, your negative behaviors that, that impact others in a non-positive way. You, you can't just call those, well, I'm showing up as me, right? I'm just, I'm mm-hmm. just being me. I, you know, I'm just direct. Or I just say it like it is. And, you know, that sort of implies if I say it like it is, then that means I don't actually care the, of the impact that it's having on you. And so, you know, part of a part of a loyalist team, part of any healthy team in, in any one to one 
personal interaction. And I know Morag, you know, this is part of what's in your book too, right? Is it's this, this idea that you've got to approach every single relationship in a way that you understand there's a big difference between, um, you know, the impact you're having and maybe the intent that you have in saying it. And people need to start to have the self-awareness and the understanding of what those healthy dialogues look like and just falling back on, you know, I may be brilliant and I can say what I want to say and I don't care if it has an impact on others, um, in my opinion, isn't tolerated and and for the most part falls more into the saboteur category. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think our work is very complementary because in Cultivate the Power of Winning Relationships, I talk about ally mindset and cultivating ally relationships. And uh, I'm delivering a keynote on Monday. And one of the activities I'm going to be getting the uh, uh, conference participants to do is to think about the exceptional leaders that they've worked with. And invariably, the answers to that question come back along the lines of, yeah, they were smart and they knew their stuff. But the majority of answers are around how they um, coached, gave feedback, um, challenged me to get out of my comfort zone, how they treated me as a human being, helped me learn from my mistakes. And that's, I think, the difference between a brilliant jerk and an ally relationship or a loyalist team is the the extent to we build the human connection and the legacy that we're leaving such that when we move on with a brilliant jerk, invariably there is a collective sigh of relief from the organization of, thank goodness they've gone. Why did it take so long? Whereas if you're an ally, if you're part of a loyalist team, there's a collective sigh of, oh, I miss them and look at the impact that they had and how they challenged and helped me to learn and grow. And they sound very similar, but they're very different in how they are remembered and the ripple effects and the impact that they have within every organization. So, I mean, we've covered a lot of content so far. We've still got some time left here, but it might be useful just to pause and summarize for our listeners. What are the three things that you're hoping that listeners are taking away from our conversation so far? And maybe, Abby, if you want to start us off, and Rebecca, you don't need to add three more, but to the extent there are other um, pithy pieces of information that listeners should be paying attention to, please do add. So, Abby, what are the three things our our listeners should be thinking about now as they consider their own loyalist teams? Yeah, so um, great question. You know, and I'm sure you you think about this too. You know, when you when you write a book and you've got so much in there, you step back and go, what what really really <laughs> matters here? What matters mm-hmm. the most um, when we think about teams? And you know, I think the first is to say, um, no matter where your team is today, uh, with hard work um, and and with support, right, your team can get better. And it's one we we've seen it, we know it. We believe in it, um, and and it's why we wrote the book. So I think the first is if you are anything less than a loyalist team, there's hope. Mm-hmm. So I think that would be um, the first. Um, Rebecca, you wanna you wanna take the sure. Um, I would say one of the most important ones is diagnose your team because the distance you have to go as a team is not the same. There's different team types, there's different circumstances, and it can be a great relief to know your starting point, even if it's really bad, because it sets the stage for 
um, where you start. You don't waste your time. You don't waste your energy. And it just gives you a path forward, just like any other business, you know, diagnostic process would do for your business. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, the other thing I would add, and then Abby, I'll throw it back to you, is um, on those teams, give people the benefit of the doubt, invest in other people, and work to make an environment where each person um, can do their very best work and is interested in getting better. Okay. Abby, anything else? Yeah. You know, I think the thing I would add, and we talked about it a little bit before, uh, and I know and I know it's core to your book too, Morag, and that is if you can show up as a loyalist and you can exhibit these behaviors where you extend trust to others, where you assume positive intent, where you really work to ensure that others can succeed, you give feedback, you listen to feedback, um, you feel as much interest in the success of your teammates as you do yourself. If you can show up like that day in and day out, you are going to start to be known as that loyalist, that teammate, and, and it can make a difference. And if every member of a team can commit to showing up like that, that's when a loyalist team can form. I love it. So the four things I heard was, A, there is hope for all of us. If you're not yet at a loyalist team, there are steps you can take to get there. Secondly, diagnose. Name the elephant. Hopefully they're baby elephants versus a herd of great big stonking elephants that you've got to deal with. But name it because then it becomes less scary and start taking action. And then the third piece I heard was give the benefit of the doubt. Assume a positive intent. It is rare in my experience, and I'm sure yours, that anybody turns up to work hoping to be seen as a brilliant jerk or not as a team player. But those are the labels that sometimes get ascribed to us. So give the benefit of doubt and then look at yourself. Number four, show up as a loyalist, show up as a team collaborator, show up as somebody who is striving to give candid and appropriate feedback to help the team move forward. Great advice. Thank you for sharing that. And so as we come to the end of the show, Abby, maybe you could start by telling us how can listeners get a copy of the book and how can they take one of your assessments? And then, Rebecca, I'm going to come back to you to, t- to remind us the Trispective Group. How and when should listeners get in touch with you to help build loyalist teams? So, Abby, tell us about the book and the assessment. How do I do it? Where do I go? Thanks, Morag. So um, you, you can go to our website, um, the traspectivegroup.com or the loyalistteam.com um, to access ordering the book. The book can be found through um, online, Amazon. Um, there's an audio version of it as well. Uh, it, Barnes & Noble, uh, the indie books. And um, if anybody's interested in doing a big bulk order, uh, reach out to us because uh, we can certainly help you get discounts. If you want to do something, get something for um, a large team or organization, can certainly do that. Um, and then, you know, the same is true for accessing our assessments. And Rebecca talked about our, our free assessment that we call Snapshot. That's the 20 question. Uh, for those that are interested in really digging in, Um, We have some more uh, robust assessments um, that you can pay for that allow you to get a 360 of your team. Um, We talk about it in our book, The Loyalist uh, Team 3D. And so, uh, you know, if you're if this 
seems to appeal to you, we highly recommend you go out and check that out. You can get all the information you need at uh, trispectivegroup.com. Okay, thank you. So, Rebecca, the Trispective Group, remind us again the the focus of the, the team and how and when should listeners contact you to help them with their organizations? So we wrote the book and created the assessments to make this thinking and this model available to many people, um, people who uh, can't afford to bring us in. Uh, we, you know, we have limited capacity at some level, but um, if people are struggling, uh, if you need help, um, we do we do this work with teams. If if you feel like you might be in over your head, the other areas we work in are executive coaching and culture and leadership work. And in all of that work, we tie these concepts together. Um, we hope the book will give people enough of what they need to be able to take it and run with it. But if anyone um, just wants to bounce some ideas off of us or um, ask any questions, we are always here to help at uh, www.trispectivegroup.com. Excellent. Well, again, Rebecca and Abby, I've really enjoyed our conversation today and want to thank you for your time. You've been listening to the Future Proof Workplace radio show, and this is Morag Barrett, partner at Sky Team and best-selling author of Cultivate, The Power of Winning Relationships, as well as co-author with Dr. Linda Sharkey of the Future Proof Workplace. Our guests this week were Rebecca Teasdale and Abby Kerno chavez of the Trispective Group, and we've been discussing their new book, uh, The Loyalist team, how trust, candor, and authenticity create great organizations. The reality is in the 21st century, the future-proof workplace is one that requires a high degree of high-performing teams. There is no company, large or small, where work is not getting done by teams, where even if you're a solopreneur, I believe you're still dependent on support from others who are working with and for you. This is vital. It's not a soft skill that can be overlooked. It's time to step up to the plate and invest in creating your own loyalist team. So thank you again for listening to the Future Proof Workplace radio show. Please stay with us and listen in next Thursday at the same time, 5 p.m. Eastern time, where we will be f- uh, further discussing the issues and challenges of the 21st century workplace to ensure that your career and your organization is ready to meet those challenges. The future of work is not tomorrow. The future of work is today. Are you ready? This has been the Future Proof Workplace with Linda Sharkey and Morag Barrett. To learn about the hosts or to get more resources on future-proofing your organization, visit futureproofworkplace.com. Thanks for listening.